Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Hey there, welcome to Inside the Hive, where we're going deep on Fox and the right-wing media machine. I'm Brian Stelter, and on this week's show, we're exploring Fox News' off-again, on-again relationship with former President Donald Trump, and how Tucker Carlson's firing may change everything. You know, Fox News is the largest cable network in the United States. It is often portrayed as a kingmaker in GOP politics. But is it really the leader, or is it more of a follower? Who has the true power, Rupert Murdoch or Trump? You know, there was a period last year when Trump basically disappeared from Fox for quite a few months. He was not interviewed by the network. It felt like Fox was trying to steer its viewers away from Trump and toward Ron DeSantis. But that all seemed to change when Trump was indicted by Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg in late March. Sean Hannity and Carlson welcomed Trump back on the air for extensive interviews. And as a viewer now, it can feel like Fox is right back in Trump's corner. So what does this mean for the network, given that it just had to pay out three quarters of a billion dollars for airing Trump's election lies? And what does this mean for the Trump candidacy and the future of the GOP? So joining me here at the table to talk about all of it is a Vanity Fair alum, Sarah Ellison. Uh, She's a veteran media and politics reporter, now the national enterprise reporter at The Washington Post. Welcome, Sarah. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Nice to have you back here. And also in the room, Joe Pompeo, Vanity Fair's senior media correspondent. Welcome, Joe. Hi, and welcome back, Sarah. I feel like this is a throwback to the days when you and I were in story meetings in this this very building. It's so fun to be back in the building. (laughs) And these stories never go away. I I mean, you know, Sarah, you've been reporting on, on the Murdochs for years. Joe, you as well. There's a lot to analyze about Trump and Fox and the Murdochs, but let's just start with the very latest about Tucker Carlson, Mm. because every week I'm in here taping this podcast, and every week there's brand new developments. The latest this week, Sarah, as you've reported for The Post, Tucker has some grand plans, some grand ambitions. He does not want to sit at home and just get paid by Fox for another year and a half. Right. So you're exactly right. And the kind of contract that Tucker has is one where Fox has agreed to pay him a certain amount of money, but they don't specify for what. So they can pay him and not put him on the air through 2024, and he'll be sort of on the bench. It's called pay or play. Pay or play. As long as they pay you, they don't have to play you. Right. I learned this as soon as I joined CNN. I had never heard of it before. Which is to say it's kind of standard. This isn't necessarily like a conspiratorial a, move for them to, to— I mean, they do probably want to screw Tucker Carlson, but right. this is also kind of a standard. It is these standard. Things. I, I, I'm pretty sure it's what happened to me when I left CNN. I think I was technically pay or play for a while. I, right. th- I think it's what happened to Don Lemon. I don't know for sure. But the point is this is a standard legal contractual thing that for Carlson is a big problem. And it's also—I mean, when you say it's a standard thing— 
in his world and for the people who are his supporters, it acts as a way for him to say, Fox is trying to silence me. Yes. And I'm the one true voice of this part of the Republican Party that like, he doesn't even want to be part of the Republican Party anymore. He sort of wants to run a renegade media campaign, much like, you know, his on-again, off-again political counterpart, Donald Trump. Oh, in that's some interesting, ways. right? He's he's post Republican Party. Yeah, it, when he gave that speech at the Heritage Foundation, he said something really. He was like, Ugh, "The Republican Party, yuck! Who wants to be part of that?" So that's mm-hmm. his new. You know, it's he, the Republicans are too establishment for him. Right? No, definitely. That's one of the themes of his old show. Now he's going to launch a new show on Twitter. Starting soon, we'll be bringing a new version of the show we've been doing for the last six and a half years to Twitter. We bring some other things too, which we'll tell you about. But for now, we're just grateful to be here. Free speech is the main right that you have. Without it, you have no others. See you soon. Well, you know, I think this seems almost like an inevitable conclusion in in certain ways. I mean, for someone like Tucker, and again, this gets into contractual things that are way above my head. Maybe you know more about this, but maybe in one sense, there's less of a claim because he's not going to some other media establishment or organization or or company. I mean, Twitter is essentially a platform that individuals use. So he as an individual will be putting what he says is a new version of his show out there. And then, of course, Twitter, it does have establishment mainstream journalistic cred. And then, of course, um, uh, it has the right level of right-wing bona fides. Well, the Elon factor. And for Elon Musk, it's it's exactly what he wants, is the free speech warriors coming to this place where they can can say what they want. I think one thing, the the, the sort of um, uh, skeptical caveat here, I think to steal Kara Swisher, I saw her tweeting about this, is that you know, just with with Fox, you know, you 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 think you're it's all about you, but it's really about the Murdochs. Mm. Guess what? Twitter, she's saying it's really about Elon. And you know, Elon has has had some fallouts with with other people that he's sort of, you know, had arrangements with. We saw it happen with like Matt Taibbi and and Barry Weiss and the Twitter files. So it it may seem like this perfect marriage right now, especially after Tucker had just done this sort of friendly interview with, with Elon Musk. With it's Elon one of his Musk. last interviews, right? Yeah, but you know, who it could you know who knows how it will turn out between them in the end. Well, when we were reporting this last night, we were saying, oh, Tucker's going to Twitter. And my editors were asking me, like, well, is he getting paid? Like, is there a deal? And I said, I can't get that. Is Elon saying anything? Right. And then all of a sudden, Elon Elon no said deal. it. Yeah. He was like, no deal. And it, it was a little bit of like a, I mean, you don't want to read too much into it. It felt like kind of a cool reception. To be like, okay, you're here, but you don't have any special carve out. Oh, like, and he was also just, like, I want some some lefties to come on and 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 do this too. Yeah, he's playing the field a little bit. We'll see. It's a interesting move for Tucker. It it fills the need that he has right now to sort of. It's a shot across the bow. I learned that Viet Din had apparently talked to Brian Friedman and said, "We're happy to negotiate." You know, we're happy to talk about Tucker's sort of the end of his contract or something, but it was like going to be a long time in the future. Viet Din is, he's like the chief legal officer yes, for Viet Din Fox is Corporation. is a very important figure at Fox Corp. He's, and Brian Freeman is Carlson's attorney, yeah, his pitbull attorney trying to get this deal done. Right. And Carlson's real worry is that Fox is trying to drag this out. And while they're dragging it out, he's losing credibility with his audience. He wants a voice. He wants his, con- he's like at the peak of his, kind of popularity and powers right now. So he wants to take all this energy. And that is what I think this is all about, right? You said a shot across the bow. 
Carlson's not going to build his entire media empire on Twitter, but it's an easy, clean place for him to just get started Mm -hmm. and to signal that he's not going to sit on the bench uh, to basically dare Fox to do something about it. Mm -hmm. You know, and and then what Brian Friedman did that was so critical on, on Tuesday afternoon, sent a letter to Fox alleging Fox has breached Carlson's contract, like basically saying, you breached first. So if you see Tucker on Twitter, he's not breaching. You breached. You've you've committed fraud against him. I don't know how strong the legal case is, but basically Carlson has his attorney accusing Fox of fraud and dredging up all of the Dominion stuff that Fox just paid three quarters of a billion dollars to make go away, to bury. So I think the interesting legal strategy developing here to have Carlson um, – not only go out and try to launch something on Twitter, but also say, Fox, you all are the one that forced me to do this. You you hurt, you hit me first. <laughs> well, totally. For me, this is the most sort of delicious angle of this whole thing. For To mm. back up, this legal letter was preceded by Fox's own cease and desists to the places that were putting out these Tucker Carlson leaks. And on the one hand, they were saying by leaking Tucker's footage, this is Fox's intellectual property or or, or whatnot. So they were already kind of going scorched earth and also putting out this kind of message that we're not the ones leaking. We're not, this isn't coming from us, even though there, there was, I think, suspicion at least that, you know, could they actually be leaking this to Medium? I mean, it sounds crazy, right. but maybe not. You know, Tucker is basically going to war with the, the powerful head of communications at Fox News, Irina Briganti. I mean, they're talking about subpoenaing her her cell phone records to see what who's, who she's communicating with, which might mm. lead to evidence of, of of these leaks. And I think that we're seeing this real, you know, the kind of like bad blood that has existed between some of the the star talent there and the communications operation. Megyn Kelly's out there saying, you know, similar things. So I, to me, this is kind of, I, I wonder where that's where that's going. What do you what do you think, Sarah? Oh, I mean, I think that that both the Brian Friedman letter and this kind of direct attack on people who are normally behind the scenes at Fox, he's trying to kind of mm. put them on their back foot as much as possible. Whether it's I have stuff on you that I could, you know, he sort of gave that veiled threat yesterday. Um, There are things that I could tell you about being in mainstream media for 30 years. And you think like, well, Fox, the last thing they want is somebody else, you know, describing what's going on behind the scenes there. Oh, interesting. No, but these two sides are never going to agree on the contract. Like they're obviously Mm. like the— the Brian Friedman letter, that's why you hire somebody like him, because he's going to go scorched earth. He's going to be super aggressive. Fox is obviously going to have a counterclaim. In some ways, it doesn't matter because it just means that for Fox, they could let this go on for a long time. Tucker wants to just like burn it down, whatever it's going to take, unless they file an injunction and get an actually really, I mean, I don't know how you would actually do that. You can't, you can't really silence him unless you're going to take some very, very serious legal action and, like, try to claw back some of the money. He clearly doesn't care about the rest of his contract. Right. And then Fox becomes a perpetrator of cancel culture by canceling Carlson and silencing him. I mean, it's just unfathomable to me that they'll go in that direction. Uh, if they file an injunction, they'll have to claim damages. Well, what damages have happened? Carlson's on the bench, so he's not on the air. and They're not making money off him on television. So what are the damages by having him post on Twitter? It's it's just, uh, I, don't, I don't see how Fox has a lot of leverage here. And they're the ones who took him off the air in the first place. Right. So it's not like they can say the damages are the low low ratings that are now, 
you know, in his former hour. They did that right. to themselves. They did that to themselves. Isn't it crazy, by the way, how this keeps happening? And Fox history keeps repeating itself. Uh, Glenn Beck, Bill O'Reilly, Megyn Kelly, Tucker Carlson. Well, these stars get pretty big. They either leave on their own or they or they get pushed out. And then they become these nuisances, these pests, these like problems on the outside. There's like no equivalent for that somewhere like MSNBC or CNN. Is there, Joe? I mean, maybe Keith Olbermann at MSNBC, but not really. You know, TV news, cable news in particular, the networks, they're all aggressive in, in their own ways. And, you know, I mean, to Fox's credit, they're aggressive in a way that, you know, is very powerful and um, has worked really to, you know, keep the narrative that they want about their network out there in a very, in a very real way. So. All right, quick break here. More with Sarah and Joe when we return. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. (laughs) But whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. So let's start to pivot to our conversation here about Trump and Fox. And, of course, arguably the biggest star in Fox history is actually Donald Trump, right? Never a paid host, but uh, a larger-than-life character on the network, arguably the president of Fox News uh, for a number of years, as well as the president of the country. There's a Tucker angle to this as well. Sarah, you reported in the Post that Trump and Tucker have had some conversations, or at least one conversation. What did you learn? What we learned is that— While Donald Trump says he's going to skip the first Republican debate that Fox is hosting— In August. In August, he and Tucker had at least one conversation about how they were going to set up an alternate sort of candidate forum Mm. outside of the official RNC debate. Now— whether that's actually going to happen, whether that is a risk that Donald Trump is willing to sort of take, it certainly sets up this, again, a competitor to the right, both of Fox and of the RNC, that they want to try to kind of go around these official, quote-unquote, establishment institutions and set up their own party, um, set up literal literal party and also sort of figurative party. They want to sort of (laughs) do their own thing. And you know, it's certainly not outside the realm of possibility that they could, both of them, you know, sort of try to put this pressure on their former homes and see what they can get out of it. Remember this happened once before, Joe. There was that uh, debate in the primaries in 2016, uh, hosted by Fox, uh, moderated by Megyn Kelly, that Trump did not attend. He skipped it. He, he snubbed Fox. He basically said, I'm going to take my ratings elsewhere. And, and true, the debate was lower rated. He went off and held some other event in Iowa instead. So there is actually a precedent for Trump skipping a Fox debate. There's a precedent. And I also feel like so much about our, our, our politics now and, and elections and the normal, quote unquote, normal processes by which these things play out have been upended why not the debates? You know, why, you know, like, why? <laughs> it doesn't seem super, super crazy in that sense. And I think there's, you know, on, on the one sense, you kind of think like, well, Trump wants all the attention he can get. And he wants to be, if he's going to 
be on a debate stage. He's going to be the center of attention. He's going to get those ratings that he can then go not tweet about, but whatever truth, social truth about, about, truth about. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, if he doesn't, he's also flexing his muscle and and, and uh, exerting some power, saying like, look, the debate tanked. I wasn't there and the, and the ratings went down the tube. So right. he can kind of play it either way. So if this happens, if there's a uh, Tucker Carlson-sponsored town hall forum, how would that differ from a from a Republican Party-sponsored debate? I mean, you have to think that it would be less concerned with sort of specific policy issues, right? Like these debates are typically pretty produced and they ask questions about immigration or what you're, you previously said this. How do you square that with this right. current um event or this current moment. And you just have to think that if you put Tucker and Trump together in an unofficial forum, that there would just be, they would just be hating on the Republicans. They'd be hating on Mitch McConnell. Um, They would certainly talk a lot about how terrible the mainstream media is, and that would include Fox as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, it would just be a grievance fest. I think that the Republican debate would probably try to sort of talk a little bit more about the official positions and the issues. And this would be something where you would just like, these are two people who want to blow everything up. Mm, right. I mean, Fox, for all of its faults, when they when they hold debates, you know, they are produced by what they you know consider their newsroom, their, their Washington, D.C. bureau, their political leaders. So there's an attempt to make news and break news at these debates. I don't know if we'd have that with Tucker having a forum, but there is a part of me that wants to find out. Like, there is a part of me that's really curious about this, what it would be like. I mean, what's interesting is that you have to think about the difference between Trump in 2023 and Trump in 2015, mm. when he first showed up and Megyn Kelly asked that first question about women. And then that's what sort of destabilized Fox in the first place, because uh-huh. Roger Ailes, the co-founder of Fox News, was always able to kind of run the Republican Party from Fo- from mm-hmm. his sort of office. And when when Donald Trump went to war with Megyn Kelly and went to war with Fox, you saw the Fox audience sort of follow him. And that was a really terrifying moment for them. And I think that sort of started that that's the, that was the moment that started them down this path that led them into, right. you know, the Dominion territory. Yeah, let's let's stay at that point for a minute. Let's go back in time. Like how how do we Joe, how do we explain Trump and Fox? What, what's the analogy for this relationship, this twisted relationship that's gone on for over a decade at this point? Well, mutually beneficial relationship because, you know, I think Fox gave Trump a platform to be to become the kingmaker he is in the Republican Party or whatever, the post-Republican Party, whatever we're, we're talking about <laughs> here, this constituency. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, he, he helped build such a massive audience. I mean, they already had a big audience, but I think that, you know, the, the, like the nightly Tucker audience, you know, which is very much, I would say the, the base, the Trump constituency, um, you know, that's a powerful thing. So I think that, you know, it was this mutually beneficial relationship that was kind of going swimmingly for, for a while. And of Mm. course they've had some, there's been some, some fractures and and ups and downs. Huge huge fractures. fractures. Just to be clear, he has called Rupert Murdoch a rhino and and bashed the Murdochs repeatedly in the past couple of years. He, he screams at Fox saying that there really was voter fraud and you should just say that in court to challenge Dominion, which of course the judge wouldn't have even allowed, but you know, Mm -hmm. the, the fractures are, are massive and yet they always seem to come back together. I, I think about Fox and Trump like a rubber band, and you can pull apart, pull apart, pull apart, but it always snaps back together. 
Um, and maybe there's like some sort of middle school dating analogy to that. I don't know. It's certainly a kind of tortured and um, dysfunctional relationship. But yeah, <laughs> you're absolutely right that the big break, which was brewing even before the 2020 election, um, you know, Rupert Murdoch mm. was was upset that Trump wasn't following his advice in terms of COVID messaging. And he mm. thought that, that, that Trump was being really irresponsible about the pandemic and felt that Trump was probably going to lose because of that. And so mm. reoriented and everybody at Fox was preparing for a post-Trump future. As we learned from those internal messages that came out during the pre-trial sort of discovery with Dominion, they were ready for a post-Trump. They were angling for it. They couldn't wait for him to be a quote-unquote non-person, which is what Rupert Murdoch said he wanted to make Trump. So that sort mm. of explains, you know, that plus the incredible hot water that they got into when they were following Trump's election lies and his election denialism. Um, they just wanted to get away from his as fast as they could. Right, right. There was a bit of, you know, there was a, mo I think that if the winds had blown in a different direction and, and say that DeSantis had emerged by this point as some an obvious front runner. Who, as like a Trump slayer. A Trump slayer. Um, I, I mean, I think maybe we would see Fox and the rest of the Murdoch media trying to set that up. A year ago, I mean, I'm not really talking about Fox here so much as Murdoch's papers, which are often seen as the channeling of, of his, his psyche. You put your finger in the air to see, you know, which way the, <laughs> the wind is blowing, so to speak. You saw suddenly this this flurry of very strongly anti-Trump columns and editorials, and really like sort of the Murdoch commentariat trying to convince uh, you know the sort of Republicans that they speak to 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 ditch Trump and you know put their eggs in a basket with one of these m more you know moderate candidates. I don't know if I called DeSantis a moderate, but he was certainly um, you know it seems like the one that people were ready to start getting behind. And there was there was, seemed to be this push, including on, you know, on Fox News, did give DeSantis a lot of airtime. Oh, yeah. A big platform in that kind of moment, in that kind of window where, where Trump was, was off the air. So I wonder, you know, if it's kind of just like the ultimate fealty is just to the Republican Party or really just like <laughs> the hatred of, of Democrats and, and doing what they can to keep Democrats out of office. Right. Hang on, stick around. We will be right back. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, I always think about Fox as more of an anti-Democrat brand than a pro-Republican. Yes, the goal is to get Republicans elected, but it's more anti-Democrat than it is pro-Republican. I think what you said about the the papers, the editorials is really important. Let's let's just go down a little deeper on that. Um, we can tell what Rupert Murdoch is thinking from these editorials. And that, that's not just an assumption anymore. It's proven in the Dominion filings because you see emails where he sends an editorial and and Suzanne Scott, the head of Fox News Media, then circulates it. And he says, thanks. Like there's there's also emails involving the editor of The New York Post uh, messaging with Rupert. And you see all of this in the document. So now we know for sure that these editorials are channeling what Rupert wants 
uh, to say. Yeah, and also people always used to say or, or still do say, you know, you don't, Rupert doesn't need to pick up the phone or send the email to say, this is what I want the editorial to say. You know, his, the people he puts in just know that. But it seems like maybe there is, there is a little more direct communication. There is. Totally. That there was is. the thing. Like, there was that wonderful email that he sent to Cole Allen, who was the editor of the New York Post at the time. And he said, should we say something that Trump will hear? And it was wow. like, yeah, he, okay, so sure, we say he, he doesn't need to communicate with his editors because they know what he's thinking, but he does it anyway. But he does you it know? anyway. <laughs> it's like, but there. then how do we square the circle here? If his anti-Trump views are so clear and they're expressed through the Post and the Wall Street Journal, why the disconnect with Fox? Is it because he's always been afraid to tell the Fox hosts what to think or say or do? I think it is that Rupert is not principled. So he will follow. He sort of leads and follows the audience. So he'll try Mm. to make DeSantis happen. You know, they did their best. And DeSantis sort of fizzled to Joe's point that it wasn't something that they could really find a new champion to get behind. And I think it's that Rupert doesn't have full control over the Fox hosts, but I think it's also that he always ends up going where the audience is. Like okay. Even he—I mean, he didn't like Trump to begin with. He tried to get Mike Bloomberg um, elected. That didn't work. And so he just sort of fell in line and decided he was going to go along for the ride oh, interesting. with Trump. He got his deal done really quickly under Trump's you know, DOJ. Selling off his assets to Disney, yeah. right. Yeah, right. so— so maybe it's less about Rupert as a kingmaker and more about Rupert as a what a king supporter. I don't Pragma- know enough pragmatic of those medieval business. Man. I think he's. Pra- I think it's just pragmatism. Well, also to Sarah's point that you know the um, the financial prospects of the New York Post or the Wall Street Journal do not rest with what their opinion page is saying. Very much Fox. Um, you know the the prime time, the opinion hours uh, at, at night. That is where so much of um, the business lies because that's where the, the biggest audiences are yeah. that is what you know t- t- ties the the different uh cable companies to to Fox because they you know they they have leverage and they're negotiating when they're doing their 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 contract over fees and I would say advertising but you know uh, Tucker obviously lost a lot of kind of the more mainstream advertisers um they seem to be reportedly coming back now but you know the New York Post and the Wall Street Journal you're not going to like upset the business model by putting out an anti-Trump column mm. in the opinion pages, right? You should always ask, what's paying for the mansions and the yachts and the and the planes? Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, right, what you're saying is it's the cable fees and the ads on Fox, not the Wall Street Journal, that's going to pay for the upkeep of the mansions. Absolutely. And you also see, I mean, I like to think now when you look at the way that Rupert was trying to steer Fox and not succeeding, that Fox is like the Frankenstein that he created that he can't control. Mm. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Don Jr. has complained about this. You know, Mm -hmm. Fox never calls me anymore. Mm -hmm. But then lately when Trump has been interviewed on Fox, it's been on tape. So an attempt to control the proverbial monster, (laughs) trying to make sure he's not going to defame Dominion again, right? Trying to make sure that that they know what he's going to say ahead of time. So they tape these interviews. And I think that's really interesting because what's the big media story of the week here other than Tucker? It's CNN's town hall with Trump. Uh, and now, full disclosure, we're taping this before the town hall happens on Wednesday night. Uh, it is it is strange times, though, to see CNN having Trump on live and Fox not. I mean, there, that's that's a shift um, that, that speaks to, to what's happening at both networks. And I guess it just raises the question, is Trump going to try to punish Fox? Is, is that actually what the CNN town hall is partly about, that he's going across the street to a rival network instead? You know, 
Trump said they made me a deal I couldn't refuse. The deal is you get to be on CNN for this this candidate forum, this ne- this this network that you've had this fraught, hostile love hate relationship that did really help you in the run up to 2016 by giving you a lot of airtime, and then of course swung the pendulum swung the other way and became your worst. And I mean, Trump, we know he craves the approval from mainstream media like CNN and the New York Times as much as he, you know, rails against it. So I think for Trump, there is a certain clout in this moment when CNN is sort of redirecting its strategy in some way to be, you know, to to um, lose this perception that it had become this, you know, clearinghouse for like, you know, anti-Trump sort of views and wanting to put more conservatives back on the air more Republicans are coming on CNN. For Trump, it might be the perfect moment to come back. And, you know, since CNN has has always for a long time been the perennial third place in the ratings and is really still struggling right now, if if Trump comes on and they have this amazing ratings night, which probably they they most likely will, Trump then gets to try to take credit Mm -hmm. for it. Like, look at what I'm doing for, you know, look look what I did for CNN. They've been, you know, about to go out of business. Here I I come along and give them their best ratings in, in whenever and I think that he probably likes that idea. Mm. Yeah, CNN's always been a very useful foil for him. Coverage of Trump, lots of coverage of his rallies in 2016, right? Right. There was a lot of that. But then, Joe's exactly right, he used CNN as a prop. He railed against CNN even as he was craving their approval. And this is what he does with the New York Times. I mean, the New York Times and CNN are probably the two media brands that he cares the most about. And... And he used CNN perfectly for for years. And so now to return there, um, and, and, you know, again, there's danger in sort of predicting what's going to happen, but you have to believe that it's going to go a little off the rails. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> I did a feature for the magazine a couple of years ago about the post-Trump um, cable news landscape. And I, I, I quoted a former CNN executive in that story um, who said, this is not verbatim, but it was something to the effect of Roger Ailes. He he wanted nothing more than CNN to be viewed as this, you know, liberal, pro-left mm-hmm. Democratic sort of network. And he said, where Roger Ailes failed, uh, Donald Trump succeeded. I think that was the the quote from this yeah this source. Yeah, and I think that's exactly that's what, right. you're, what you're saying. So if we're in this environment now where Trump's on CNN and he has you know very friendly outlets at Newsmax and other places. Where does that leave Fox? You know, especially Fox without Tucker Carlson, one of the, you know, most recent interviewers of Trump. I, I wonder if we're, we're heading into a primary season where is Fox less relevant or is Fox seen as anti-Trump? Any any thoughts? I think you can't count Fox out. They have been number one for so long. And yes, they've, you know, this is a blow. They fired Tucker. Um, They also, as they like to point out, they also got rid of Glenn Beck when he was at the height of his powers. They also got rid of Bill O'Reilly when he was at the height of his powers. Now, the media environment is different. There's more digital sort of attention and, and other platforms. But I was on a panel when I was at Vanity Fair in 2016, and the name of the panel was Are Fox Are Fox's Best Days Behind It? Oh my gosh. And it's so like, <laughs> yeah, we can ask the same question. Let's see what it, where we go. I, th- I think that the, the, also the question of um, 
You know, we've seen Newsmax, which is kind of like the closest thing they sometimes have to a competitor, uh-huh. kind of reaping the benefits of, it seems like, some of the audience going over. That same thing happened um, in the midst of the, the Stop the Steal fervor, and everyone reported on it. And, you know, I think Fox rightly thought, like, just wait and see. And, and of course, it did readjust, and those ratings fell away. So I think we have to see what happens. But some people were really freaking out, and we saw that. And, I mean, when I talk to former executives of Fox, they bolster the idea that Fox has always been more concerned about a competitor to the right than they have been about a a surge in ratings for CNN or for MSNBC. Mm. It's because the whole place was founded on the idea that, and Roger Ailes said this explicitly, let everybody else fight over the center and the center left. We'll take the rest of the country. And so that's what they want. They want to hold that whole half of the country captive. And among the the more confident folks of Fox right now, the message is they always come back. Mm -hmm. The audience always comes back. And historically, that's basically been true. And it occurs to me that's a similarity between Fox and Trump. Mm -hmm. Trump's attitude, they're going to come back. You know, my fans are going to stay with me. They're going to come back. And there was a while there right after January 6th where it seemed like his support was, was sinking. People have come back. He's he's the leading candidate for the Republican Party nomination. Folks who might have flirted with DeSantis, some of them have come back mm-hmm. to Trump. Mm-hmm. And you use the word captive, which is an interesting word. And it gets to what what's going on in the psychology of folks who come back to Fox. And mm. it's it's sort of the enemy of my enemy when it comes to the way Fox plays these things. Because there's nothing worse than the woke mob or the Democrats or, you know— Trump is fundraising off of the E. Jean Carroll stuff. And and we sit around and say, oh, is this going to hurt him? No. I mean, maybe around the margins, maybe there'll be some uh, suburban women who decide, no, I'm not going to go with Donald Trump. But for the real animated, like where all the energy is in media, and people have told me this again and again, it's on the fringes. Like there's no market for middle of the road stuff in media as much as People kind of want to wish for that. Well, I hope we're a nice middle-of-the-road conversation here. (laughs) I'd like to think we are. Uh, Sarah, Joe, thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. That was Washington Post reporter Sarah Ellison and Vanity Fair's very own Joe Pompeo. This episode was produced by Michael May. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. We had engineering assistance from Gabe Caroga, Jake Loomis, and Bob Mallory. I'm Brian Stelter. You can find me on Twitter at Brian Stelter. Let us know what you think of the program. And subscribe to our newsletter at VanityFair.com backslash newsletters. We will be back in your podcast feed next week. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. 
I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) 